thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. With me, Adam Murphy. And with me, Chris Smith. Coming up, a new 20-minute test for COVID, why hybrid cars turn out to be worse for the environment than their official performance figures claim. And after hundreds of elephants mysteriously died in Botswana earlier this year, researchers now think they know why. And also this week, with an eye on World Vegetarian Day, we're looking at the feasibility of a reduced meat diet. What can cutting down calories from meat do for our health and the health of the planet? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Recently, Boris Johnson announced an ambitious plan, which he dubbed his moonshot, to test our way out of the current COVID crisis and back to normality. But the price tag of this proposed multi-million scale daily testing regime is nearly as much in itself as the cost of running the entire National Health Service. Unsurprisingly, many are sceptical, not least because some of the technology needed to deliver it doesn't even exist yet. So, you would think that a new coronavirus test developed by Anglia Ruskin researcher Stephen Buston that delivers a result in just 20 minutes would have Health Secretary Matt Hancock rubbing his hands together to offer help. But that's not been Stephen's experience. Here he is explaining to Chris what he's managed to achieve and what the problem is. We have developed a test that is much faster than anything that is available at the moment. Instead of taking an hour and a half, our test takes 15 minutes. Goodness me. Now tell me how it works. You would spit into a test tube and we would spend about five minutes extracting the genetic information from the virus. That genetic material is a chemical called RNA, which we cannot use in our test. We therefore have to convert it into a second chemical, which is DNA. That DNA is then put into our test, which is a PCR-based test, and it copies the DNA copy that we have made several million fold, which we then can detect using sensitive instrumentation. This is very similar, though, to what is going on in diagnostic laboratories all over the world, except they're taking hours to do it. Why are you able to do it in 20 minutes? How have you done that? Well, firstly, our test detects more than one viral gene. We look at three viral genes. Secondly, we have used a better method, a faster method, Most labs use methods that are 30 years old. They take a long time to convert the viral RNA into DNA, and they take a long time to do the test itself. We have streamlined this to do this in 30 seconds and then one second and one second bursts. Interestingly, you said you're using saliva. This is not routinely being done, though, is it? Most people are familiar with having what feels like a brain biopsy with an enormous great long thing being rammed up your nose and swabbed into the back of your throat. So... Why saliva? 
Well, saliva is obviously a lot more easy to get hold of. You just spit into a tube, and this then allows you to extract your nucleic acid from that saliva sample. Saliva is as good a sample as a swab, and in some instances and some papers suggest that it is even better. So if one does a head-to-head between what we're currently doing in diagnostic laboratories across the country and your new method, does it perform at least as well or, or possibly even better than what we're doing at the moment? The test itself is better than what people are using at the moment. Our test can detect a single copy of the viral genome. And we tested our test on samples from Broomfield Hospital, and we found that in every single case where the hospital had a positive, we had a positive, and in every single case where they had negative, we had a negative. Could you use the existing machines and platforms which are running across the country and, in fact, across the world to introduce this test, or does this need a whole new load of equipment and a whole load more expensive training before it could be launched? No, this test will work with any instrument that can run real-time PCR. Have you spoken to the people who are in charge of testing Hmm. in the UK? Yes, we've done two things. We applied for funding from Innovate UK, and we had four referees, and they all gave it very high ratings, but it wasn't funded. Um, I then went to my local MP and talked to him, who put me in touch with the health secretary, The problem is that unless a test is CE-marked or FDA-approved, it is very difficult to get it accepted rapidly. And as a university, we don't have the facilities to do a proper CE-marking, for example. So it is not easy to introduce a new test like this. What you're saying is then that bureaucracy is effectively getting in the way of a test being introduced that could in fact be an order of magnitude faster than what we can do at the moment. It's one problem, yes. What did Matt Hancock say? He put me through to Lord Bethel, who then put me through to somebody else. It wasn't a totally satisfactory uh, interaction. And what grounds were they giving them? Were they just saying you have to go through the right channels and yes, just, there, just to there, go away? <laughs> I mean, that's not very constructive, is it? There, there's no easy and fast, um, like, Dragon's Den type approach to, to pitching something and then getting funding for it. Or well, how, how much do you think accepted? you need, Stephen, to, to, to actually get a CE mark? This is, and for people not in the know, this is, this okay. is like a badge of honour that says this, this meets or passes muster, isn't it? A CE mark says this is a tried and tested, yeah. validated, quality assured test. That's what you need, isn't it? How much is that going to cost, do you think, then, to get that? Uh, I, I, it's not just a question of cost. It's a question of we're not set up to do that. So what, what I would like to happen is uh, for a manufacturer to get in touch with us or for us to be able to get in touch with a manufacturer and get them to do it with us. And that's what we're trying to do at the moment. OK, well, we will throw down the gauntlet to people listening to this. And if anyone would like to get in touch, who do they get in touch with to say to you, we'll take your pain away and we'll get this test out there? Well, I can give you my email. Stephen with a PH dot Bustin, B-U-S-T-I-N at A-R-U dot A-C dot U-K. So, if you can take Stephen Buston's call and help him get his test approved rather than transfer him to Lord Bethel, do drop him a line. It's incredible, that, isn't it? Anyway, time for something of a handbrake turn on the topic front now. 
over to hybrid cars, which are a significant slice of the automobile market these days. These vehicles claim to cut emissions. They're incentivized by lower levels of tax, and they're also cited as a cornerstone to help us cut our carbon footprint. But new research from Transport and Environment and Greenpeace, which followed up to 20,000 hybrid drivers, suggests that in real-world usage, the emissions from hybrids are up to two and a half times higher than the tests would have you believe. Adam spoke to Richard Black, who's the director of the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, he wasn't involved in the study, about why there could be such a big gulf in these numbers. The mismatch seems to be the testing it doesn't take place in real-world conditions. And so you can test them in a lab, or you can go out on a test drive, and that's fine. But actually, people don't always use uh, cars as they do in a test condition. And I remember there was actually a study out a couple of years ago in the UK, which looked at the behaviour of company car hybrid drivers. So people who'd been given a company car that was a hybrid. And what they found was that a lot of those drivers weren't actually using the electric component of this at all. They were simply driving around using the petrol engine. And of course, if you do this, your emissions are not going to be lower than they would be from just having the petrol or engine itself. In fact, they might actually be higher because you're lugging around, you know, a big battery and so on that you're not using. It's just extra weight. So what happens then just for a bit of background in those kind of testing conditions that makes them so different from how the real world is? Obviously, the tests are done in, a, in an artificial situation. So you can go out on a test drive, whatever it might be, a 20-kilometer drive. But the driver knows why they're doing that drive. Sometimes the motor industry conducts tests in the, in the laboratory where the cars are mounted up on rollers and you fit a hose over the, over the exhaust pipe and you, and you catch emissions there. But again, you're driving behavior will be changed by the fact that you know that you're in a test. What's also emerged a few years ago when we had the so-called Dieselgate scandal was that at times the testing labs, they seem to have a un- slightly unhealthy relationship with some of the car companies. Now, I don't know if that's the case in this uh, instance with the hybrid test, but you know that's something that I say it is there in the history of motor manufacturing in Europe. So I think the main reason is, though, the behavioural one. We all know... For example, when we we jump in a car, we know that the emissions are going to be highest when the engine's cold and we should sort of warm it up. We don't always do that because sometimes we're in a hurry. We don't always drive, as the old driving instructors used to say, as though there's an eggshell between your right foot and the accelerator pedal to conserve gas. We accelerate sharply, we brake sharply, we do all these things. So that's why this real world data, I think, is so so interesting. Would you be able to tell me a little about the new policy decisions? The hybrids question matters in the context of a policy that the British government is expected to make in the next couple of months, which will be basically a ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel engine cars. It's going to set a date when that ban will come in. The date could be as early as 2030. It could be as late as 2035. And basically, the the main reason from climate change terms for doing this is because transport emissions in the UK haven't been falling. This is an obvious way to do it. It's an absolute no-brainer if you want to get to the net zero target. There are calculations also suggesting it would be good for UK GDP. There's a whole range of businesses that are behind this. So one of the questions is then, do you include hybrids in this ban? And the government has been subject to intense lobbying 
from parts of the UK automotive industry which make hybrids and have invested heavily in hybrid drivetrains to say that hybrids should be allowed. But obviously what this new research does is to say, well, hang on a moment, if hybrids aren't actually much cleaner in real life than normal petrol or diesel cars, why would you allow them to be continue to be sold after this ban comes in? Why wouldn't you go straight for pure electric cars and and pure hydrogen-powered cars as well. So that's why I think this finding coming as it is is particularly important because it does very much play into the logic of this decision that the UK government is expected to announce in the next couple of months or so. Fascinating stuff. Well, my next car is going to be an electric, that's for sure. Thanks very much to Richard Black. Why do kittens... Puppies and human animals play. From pets rough and tumbling with each other to team sports. Join me, Katie Haler, as I find out why larking about is so important for health. Check out Naked Neuroscience on the Naked Scientist website or wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, we learn what mysteriously wiped out hundreds of elephants in Botswana and 94% of us are meat eaters. So what would be the benefits of more plants in our diet? Rivers, streams and lakes are an important part of the landscape, not just owing to their aesthetic value, but because they provide much of our drinking water. Alarmingly, though, a new survey has delivered a damning verdict on the health of these water sources. Eva Higginbottom. It is a sunny and windy September day and I'm down by the River Cam in Cambridge. There are a lot of very excited ducks, some swans, even a baby swan, well, a teenager really, and of course the river itself. Even with summer coming to an end here in the UK, there are still a lot of people on the riverbank. And in high summer, the riverside is a popular spot for picnics, punting and even swimming. But despite this idyllic scene... A recent report by the Environment Agency revealed that there is more going on below the surface, and it's not good news. Earlier, I spoke with Janina Gray from Salmon and Trout Conservation to understand what's going on. The results which came out last week are the water classification results according to the Water Framework Directive, which is a piece of European legislation which looks at the health of all all our water bodies, so our rivers, our lakes, our streams, and basically classifies them according to their ecological health and also the uh, physiochemical health of the water body. And clearly the results last week were not very good. All of our water bodies were failing good status and that's because all failed for chemicals and only 14% were healthy according to their ecological attributes. And that's things like the fish, the plant communities within the rivers. That just seems to be an incredibly poor score. Where do these chemicals come from? So it's a wide range of places. Obviously, agriculture is a, is a major problem. So farmers will spray pesticides on their land to obviously kill bugs and they'll spray phosphates, fertilisers, basically, to help the plants grow. And if this is washed off via rainfall into the rivers, that's when it starts causing big problems. So obviously, pesticides, you know, they will kill invertebrates in the river. They will cause disruption to fish. And phosphates in the rivers basically can lead to excess algae growth, which basically sucks up all the oxygen from the 
water body and chokes out wildlife. There's also um, pharmaceuticals, so from things being flushed down the toilets and going into the sewage system and then obviously ultimately ending up in rivers and, you know, runoff from industries as well. Um, It's really across the board. Do you know how they actually carried out the survey? Did they literally go to every single river, stream, lake around the whole of England to get these data? It's, it's not possible to survey everywhere. The Environment Agency has a monitoring network, which they then fill in the gaps by modelling. And anybody who knows modelling will know that the models are only as good as the data that goes into those models. And unfortunately, like with a lot of things across the board from the Environment Agency, monitoring has also been cut. And what do you think we need to do? What can we do about this? So there's some really quick wins that we could do um, or the government could do. Ultimately, at the moment, a lot of the pressures coming that are facing our water bodies are coming from agricultural sources. The regulation is already there. We have something called Farming Rules for Water. We've got slurry regulations. But the Environment Agency does not have the resources to basically enforce this legislation. And by just enforcing that legislation, it could make a dramatic difference. It could reduce the phosphates that are coming in from fertilisers. It could reduce the chemicals coming in from pesticides. It could reduce the sediment reaching our rivers as well, which is bringing in a lot of other nasties with it. And is this just a UK problem? Across uh, the European um, Environment Agency did do a report and they found that on average it was about 40% of water bodies were reaching good ecological status across Europe. And the countries that were failing were the kind of heavily industrialised countries or basically more populated countries. So countries like Belgium, Germany, the Netherlands and and of course England um, were faring the worst. And just to play devil's advocate, why does it matter if the rivers are unhealthy? It affects all of us. I think that, you know, from coming out of COVID, we've all realised that actually green spaces, blue spaces are really important to our well-being, our health. And obviously, these chemicals, they will affect um, invertebrate communities, which are the base of the food web. They'll in turn affect fish and all the other associated wildlife that we love and, and that we care about, kingfishers, otters. So it's a well-being thing for all of us and obviously intrinsic value of nature that we need to protect them. But also the more chemicals, uh, the more pollution that's going into water bodies, the more basically our water companies have to pick up the cost to remove them. And ultimately, you know, that's us. So we're paying twice, really. We're paying to clean up the act of industry, of farming, and also we're losing biodiversity. We're losing these really iconic species. Not good news, is it? That's Janina Gray speaking to Eva Higginbottom. To Africa now, and uh, back in July when we brought you the tragic news of a massive elephant die-off in Botswana's Okavanga Delta, hundreds of the animals were found dead. Now, originally the cause was unknown, but this week Botswana's Department of Wildlife and National Parks think that they've identified the culprit, and that's blue-green algae in stagnant water. And Phil Sansom reports. The first of the elephant deaths were reported back in March. Then, from May, the carcasses started appearing in droves. 169 elephant carcasses were found. By June, that number had risen to over 350. Some looked like they died incredibly quickly, keeling over onto their knees and faces. Others were reported looking disoriented, walking around in circles before eventually collapsing. This is deeply troubling. Elephants don't just drop dead for no apparent reason. For Africa's largest elephant herd, this unknown devastation looked like an existential disaster. 
Among all the possible reasons that were suggested, from starvation to dehydration to deliberate poisoning, Niall McCann, from the UK charity National Park Rescue, mentioned the following on The Naked Scientists. The least likely is that this is a natural toxin, something like anthrax or a blue-green alga. If it was any of those things, we'd be expecting to see many other species also succumbing as well. Well, Botswana's government have just announced that this is indeed the reason. Tests have revealed that it is a cyanobacteria, which is a blue-green algae that lives in water bodies. Elephant conservationist Vicky Bolt. Cyanobacteria are in many water systems across the world, but they become toxic when they bloom. We call it an algal bloom, which is just a mass generation of new cells, new bacteria. And we see these like blue-green scummy layers on top of water bodies, which is what's called blue-green algae. Usually that water body should be quite warm and nutrient rich uh, and also slow moving or or stagnant. There's certain types of this blue-green algae, this cyanobacteria, that produce neurotoxins, toxins that hurt your nervous system, make it start to shut down. You might see symptoms such as confusion, muscle weakness, muscle spasms, and that actually aligns quite closely with some of the symptoms that were reported in these elephants. Interestingly, these blue-green algae may have actually been the cause of some prehistoric mass elephant die-offs, which would be a bizarre turn of events because there's no record of them happening since, until possibly now. And why here in this part of Botswana, in the Okavango Delta? The area where these elephants have died is very much enclosed from the broader ecosystem. There are fences separating Namibia from Botswana, but also a veterinary fence, which keeps wildlife and livestock from intermixing. The only other water source that's not a small stagnant pond is the Okavango Panhandle. But for elephants to access that, they have to move through human settlements and through farmland. And so that cleaner water potentially is not readily accessible to them, which may have forced them to use these toxic water bodies. No other wildlife species on the plains were affected by this toxic water. And even scavengers like hyenas and vultures that were seen feeding on the elephant carcasses showed no signs of illness. There's a couple of possibilities why we're not seeing that. Firstly, it might be that just due to an elephant's sheer size, they drink a huge amount of water. And perhaps it's the amount of water and therefore the amount of toxins that they're ingesting. The other option is that elephants... And elephant carcasses are very well monitored in Africa. And so it's possible that actually we're recording these dead elephants and not recording anything else because other things are harder to survey or or less important to survey. Both of these are just theories at the moment. I have seen a lot of people online still quite sceptical. And I think that's mostly based upon the lack of transparency in the reporting from the Botswana government. We have very little idea of exactly what samples were taken from the elephant carcasses, but also from the water sources and the broader environment. But we also haven't seen the pure lab results. Like we reported last time on the program, we covered this story. This is bad news for elephants as a whole, because back when researchers just didn't know what this was, There was a worry that this could sweep through the whole of the elephant population and become their equivalent disaster while coronavirus sweeps through us. 
If it is the blue-green algae, though, then we might hope that this is a limited area not going to happen now that the temperatures are going down. But if this indeed is something that happened this summer because of warmer temperatures, then who's to say it won't happen next summer or the summer after that? It might be that we've seen the perfect climatic conditions for causing these blooms potentially a worry as we're moving into a warming world under climate change. We might start to see some of these algal blooms happening more often. Vicky Bolt there. And if there are any further developments in the investigation, we will be sure to update you. And for more from The Naked Scientist, why not head over to our website? That's nakedscientist.com. You can also follow us on social media. We're at Naked Scientists in most places. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to find out more about the news stories we've been discussing, the links to each of the reference papers are on our website at nakedscientist.com, along with transcripts of each interview for every Naked Scientist show we make. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for your audio and video productions. Surveys suggest that about 6% of people in countries like the UK are vegetarian. Here, that means about 3 million people. But looking at it the other way, I'm one of the 94% of us that chooses to eat meat. But why is that? Well, it turns out it's probably a behavioural thing that's programmed into us by our lifestyles from birth, as Adam has been finding out. Vegetarianism is on the rise, but even so, it's still the minority position. Vegetarians and vegans have plenty of moral arguments, saying things like animals not being ours to use. And as someone who does eat meat, I find those moral arguments hard to dispute, to be honest. But why is meat eating so ingrained in our culture? I spoke to sociologist Kate Stewart from Nottingham Trent University. It's something that we do three times a day or more we eat. We eat together as part of our family units, as part of our friendship units. So changing the normal ways of doing that is actually quite a big task because it is such a huge part of our everyday lives. I think as vegetarianism, veganism and plant-based diets become more popular, adopted by more and more people, then that process of perhaps shifting becomes a little bit easier, a little less unusual. That makes meat eating the default, and the default is easy to maintain. But how are animals presented in society to reinforce that default? I think that there's lots of ideas that we have about being special and different and separate from the natural world, if you like, that a way in which we identify ourselves as a species as being important and special is through our sense of dominance, ownership, use of the natural resources on the planet that we live on. This idea that everything else on the planet is there for us to use and for us to use in order to sustain and in 
enjoy our lives as as members of the human species. So from infancy, we see messaging about the normality of using animal products right from the beginning. I mean, if you think about the absurdity of infant milk formula brands referencing cows, the idea that this replacement for human milk is already being subtly messaged as something that comes from another species and the appropriateness of that. If you look at children's food packaging, mostly canned baby food is rice and vegetables mashed up. You look at the pictures on the front and the description of the meals, it's shepherd's pie, it's it's uh, mum's roast, you know, it has all of that traditional narrative to it about what a meal is and favouring the meat part, the animal product part, when in fact, if you looked at the ingredient list, that's really not what's in the jar at all. It's mashed up vegetables and rice with maybe a bit of other things for flavour. So the messaging comes through right from the beginning of life and then we see it reinforced through how other animals are represented in toys, in games, in film and television, on clothing even. We see this organisation of different species into their appropriate uses to us as humans. Some people look down on vegetarians and vegans. There's that old joke, how do you find the vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. But where does that attitude come from? I think it's because people see it as being some sort of moral or ethical comment. And it seems to suggest people who aren't vegetarian or vegan feel that vegetarians and vegans are making some kind of suggestion that non-vegans, non-vegetarians have failed morally. It's some sort of ethical shortfall that they failed to act on a moral issue. They failed to do something that vegetarians and vegans have done on an issue of morals. So that prompts all kinds of responses, can prompt a defensive So you speak to any vegan, they will tell you how common it is for non-vegans to account for their moderate consumption of other animals quite enthusiastically. So that's one common response. But then also quite common is that angry defensiveness turns round as an attack because it's a response to feeling that their own moral thoroughness is being questioned Kate Stewart there. But is a plant-based diet better or worse for us than a meat-based one? And indeed, does it need to be an all or a nothing thing? Do we actually need to choose or would a shift towards a more plant-based diet for at least some of our meals be a good compromise? Well, Shireen Kassam is a consultant haematologist. She's also with the University of Winchester and she's got an interest in the management of chronic diseases using plant-based diets. Uh, Shireen, before we we get into that, what do you personally eat? What sort of diet do you subscribe to? I eat a 100% plant-based diet, so other people would call that a vegan diet. Okay, I just wanted to put that on the table, excuse the pun, because that way people Mm kind of understand where we're coming from. Now, in what ways do you believe that eating a plant-based diet is better for a person than a meat-dominated diet? Yeah, well, the science is clear on this. The greater your shift towards a plant-based diet, minimising animal foods and processed foods, the healthier you are. And that's 
healthier body weight and significantly reduced risk of cardiovascular diseases, type 2 diabetes and certain cancers. And more and more, it's clear that those same risk factors are leading to dementia in later life. And if we got away from our conventional meat-based diet, there would be less incidence of dementia in our society too. So is that the case then, that if one looks at populations, such as in parts of Asia where meat-based diets are rare, that you see a correspondingly low rate of dementia and a correspondingly low rate of things like diabetes, high blood pressure, stroke and heart attack? For sure, if we look around the world where people are living the longest and the healthiest lives, and these regions in the world are called the blue zones, people are eating predominantly plant-based diets, 85 to 90% plant-based. And when scientific studies have been done looking at the difference in their health outcomes for omnivores versus pescatarians, vegetarians, vegans, a stepwise reduction in the amount of animal food you're eating, the better the health outcomes. Yep, so the science is absolutely clear on this. But if someone says, well, actually, I quite like eating meat, and I mean, I'm one of them, um, you'd have to, to really twist my arm very hard up my back to dissuade me from occasionally frying up a rasher of bacon. It's just something I really enjoy doing from time to time. Would nevertheless a substitution of some plant-based foodstuffs in place of a meat dish still translate into a health benefit? I don't have to go the whole hog. That's probably a bad choice of words, isn't it? I don't have to go all the way in order to get some health benefit. No, absolutely. You don't have to be 100% plant-based. But I would like to be clear that you can be perfectly healthy eating 100% plant-based diet. So it comes down to a choice, a choice that we can all make. But any shift towards a plant-based diet is going to be better as long as it's coming from healthy sources of whole plant foods, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, not the processed plant-based foods that are becoming increasingly available. And if you are going to choose your meat, I really would persuade you not to eat a processed meat like bacon because it is a group one carcinogen it causes cancer so make a better choice whoops okay well that's that off the menu then but um just coming back to the question of being healthier because one does hear horror stories where you get people who say well i'm going to turn over a new dietary leaf and i'm going to go down the plant-based diet route i'm going to eschew meat and then they wind up in their doctor's surgery with raging anemia because they're not getting enough iron. They can also get other micronutrient deficiencies. So is that just poor eating habits because they have embraced the lifestyle without knowing what they're doing? Or, or is, there, is there a high risk that this can happen to, to anybody? Well, I think it can happen to anyone on any diet pattern. And as a haematologist, I see plenty of people with iron deficiency. And as you've already pointed out, 94% of the population are not vegan or vegetarian, your risk of anemia is no greater on a vegan or vegetarian diet. We're doing our current diet pattern very poorly. We're fiber deficient, potassium deficient, folate deficient, and we, we are eating too much protein from animals and saturated fat. So all diet patterns need careful planning, and we've forgotten how to do that. So if you're shifting a diet pattern, you need to do it with the knowledge and skills to do it properly. As you know, a vegan diet needs supplementation with vitamin B12 because it's not made by humans or animals. But beyond that, you need to find your nutrients in the same way as you would on an omnivorous diet. How quickly would one begin to derive benefit? Because if you've been eating a lifetime of meat, is it... The, the fact that if I were to switch to an exclusive plant-based diet, A, a that might upset my system for a while, um, and B, would it actually be beneficial at a later stage of life to do that? 
Yeah, so, I mean, it's always beneficial to shift more towards plant-based diet, but it depends on your starting point. Uh, as you pointed out, you can be healthy eating an omnivorous diet if you're doing it with lots of fruits and vegetables and other nutrient-dense foods alongside the meat. So you may not feel anything, but if you did need to improve your health, as the majority of the UK population do, you'll find that it's easier to shed a few pounds in the first few weeks because you're eating lower-calorie density foods, which are more nutrient-dense, for example. If you do have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, within a few days your blood sugars will come down and you need careful management of that. Within two to four weeks you'll find that your blood cholesterol level, if it needed to be lower, will come down to a healthier baseline. So yes, within a few um, days, weeks, months, and, and of course we're all talking a lot about gut health and the gut microbiome, that only takes a few days of shifting to a healthy plant-based diet to show an increase in the healthful bacteria. But it might be if you're feeling well and healthy, you don't, you don't feel any benefits. It's just you're benefiting your long-term health and, of course, the health of the planet too. Shireen, you've sold me. Thanks very much. That's Shireen Kassam from the University of Winchester. This week, we're looking at vegetarianism. And so far, we've considered some of the health benefits of adopting a diet that's richer in plant-based constituents. But what factors drive our food choices and dietary decisions, especially when we dine out or eat at work? Adam's been talking to the people trying to make plant products impossible to distinguish from their meat counterparts. But first, the issue of what you serve and in what order. We know there are benefits to a plant-based diet. And we also know that people don't like change. But is there anything that can be done to gently persuade people to be a bit veggier? Emma Garrett from the University of Cambridge looked at one approach in the university's cafeterias. We found that increasing vegetarian availability in cafes, so instead of one out of four options being vegetarian, it's two out of four, increased vegetarian sales. And not just in people who are more likely to pick a vegetarian option anyway, but even in the most carnivorous diners, they also became more likely to pick a vegetarian option. It seems that just providing people with more vegetarian and plant-based alternatives really helps to shift diets. Another set of studies we did, we wondered, how does the position of meals in cafeterias, how does that influence sales? And so week by week, we swapped putting a vegetarian option nearest the entrance, so this veg first condition, and putting the vegetarian option further away from the entrance and the meat option first. And what we found was that when there was quite a long distance between those two options, 181 centimetres to be precise, then vegetarian sales increased by between four and six percentage points. However, when the vegetarian and meat options were quite close together, less than 80 centimetres, putting the vegetarian option first didn't really increase sales and in fact sales could even be lower so that was quite surprising and unexpected because there's a very commonly held belief if you want people to just pick something more you put it nearer a cafeteria entrance and we found that that's not really the case necessarily it can work under some circumstances so it seems to be the more important thing is about having a vegetarian option being the easiest being the default option the least effortful But that's not the only way. There have been leaps and bounds made in meat substitutes. Things like meat-free burgers or vegan sausage rolls. Chris Davis, research director of Impossible Foods, 
is working on making the best meatless meat. We started off with a specific mission in mind, which was to replace animals in the food system. And in order to do that, you need to provide a better product that provides more consumer benefits and sell it to people at lower cost. Then that, if that product also has sustainable benefit advantages, you can make some difference to biodiversity, etc. So because of that, we started off with a very clear focus on meeting the normal meat eaters where they are today. So not trying to ask them to eat anything different, trying to make something that looks exactly and behaves exactly like the meat they're already eating. And so as a result of that, we, we went back to first principles and said, well, what is it about animal tissue that provides the, the sensory delight, the way it cooks, the way it transitions, the way it handles? All of those things are important to the social glue that meat provides in a lot of ways. And so what we had to do was basically go back to first principles and identify the molecular ingredients that enabled us to replicate that. And I think that's just a very different approach than any of the previous companies have tried in this field. So let's start with the sizzle. The sizzle of cooking meat, if you think about what it, it's critical to your enjoyment of meat, but it really is nothing to do with the, the animal. But it's really to do with the way that the fat and the water leaks from the meat and when, when you cook it. And so by measuring that, we can then say, okay, how do we replicate that behavior and so we were able to create a fat mimic and include it in the composite material that we that of our meat that had that same performance of leakage that led to the same sizzle. So when you now cook it on the grill, you get the sizzle. You're cooking it on a barbecue, you'll get the fat leak, you'll get the flames coming out when the fat hits the coals, etc., etc. It's all driven by our fundamental understanding of how sizzle works. And basically, we've done that all the way through meat. And what is Chris's admittedly biased opinion? about the importance of meat alternatives like the ones from Impossible Foods. This is probably the most interesting and important scientific challenge that is currently going on in the world, is how do you feed the world with delicious, nutritious food in a way that enables us to maintain the planet in a state in which we want to live? So we can maintain having rainforests, that we can make a significant dent in climate change. People underestimate how important the food system is to our impact upon the planet. And we can do so much better if we step aside from the Stone Age technology of animals. You know, eating animals made sense as a pre-agricultural society, but from a, just a straight up efficiency perspective and our ability to feed the 9 billion people or so we'll have on the planet in a few years time, we need a better way to feed people. Chris Davis there, and before him, Emma Garrett. Have you tried any of these meat substitutes, Adam? I have, actually. I've tried this one in, that they sell that's kind of the same kind of deal as Impossible Foods, and it is surprisingly like a burger. It's worryingly like a burger, almost. Yeah, just Eva Higginbotham, who works with us, I think she was saying the other day that uh, someone presented her with two sausages. One was the real deal, full of pork, and the other one was one of these meat substitutes and, and she said she couldn't tell the difference so that i mean that's a kind of kind of good sign i think i shall have to perhaps bite the bullet as well as the sausage well let's uh, zoom out a bit now as uh, chris davis was just mentioning to us it's not just our health that can be improved by a shift towards a more plant-based diet the planet 
can benefit as well. And with us to explain how is University of Manchester physicist Sarah Bridle. She's also the author of the book Food and Climate Change Without the Hot Air. And it's lovely to have her on the programme. Sarah, tell us first of all, what proportion of the climate change gases that we emit in a year is food the contributor or source of? Well, in terms of all the cutting down forests, we have to do agriculture on the land and then animals and fertiliser on the fields and so on. And, and all the packaging and transport and everything adds up to about a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions currently coming from food. And that's increasing as there are more people eating more, more climate unfriendly foods. And what fraction of that quarter is meat? Um, it's about a half of that is coming from meat, depending on how you add it up. But yeah, it's half or more. And, and why is meat so high? Because you think, well, meat, meat, we're going to eat that. So why would meat contribute so many climate change gases? Well, fundamentally, we have to grow a lot of food to feed to animals. So it takes about uh, 16 times as much land to produce animal-based foods as it does to produce plant-based foods. Oh, goodness. So in other words, what fraction, if you do the sums then, of the total land in agricultural use is just growing food for animals? So about 80%, so about four-fifths of the current agricultural land is currently being used to produce food for animals. Well, that's a lot, isn't it? So that means then if we all went vegetarian, and I'm not for a minute suggesting that that anyone would embrace that idea, but if we did, does that mean then that that 80% of land would immediately be liberated because we wouldn't have to grow food for animals that we wouldn't want to eat? Very nearly, yeah. I mean, we'd have to grow a little bit more plants just to make up for the calories and nutrition we'd lose from the meat. But even then, three quarters, 75% of the agricultural land would then be freed up. And we could use it for other things like maybe forests, for example, are pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And that itself would also help to combat climate change. But you pointed at this when we first began to talk just now when you said, well, actually, the human population, although it's only a quarter... Of, of our contributions, the human population is growing. So that quarter is growing as well, isn't it? So it's it's continuing as the human population grows to get bigger and bigger and bigger as a contributor. So even if we did all go vegetarian, we'd still end up with food production being a very significant source of climate change gases. Absolutely. I mean, we we have to do something about the three quarters, the, the rest of it. But if we, if we were to stop burning fossil fuels, then food would then be the biggest contributor to climate change. And, and it's certainly, hopefully, we're going to reduce fossil fuel usage and, and it will be more and more important in terms of climate change in the next decade, hopefully. And what, therefore, is our best approach? How do we get a handle on that 25% is, is the food industry to bear down on that? And also, if we do switch away from meat towards more plant-based diets, how do we keep driving down the contribution to climate change gases from agriculture? Well, I really, really feel that there's not enough information that's easily accessible at the moment. So quite often people will just say, you know, for example, an average vegan diet causes about half the greenhouse gas emissions of an average omnivore diet. We can do these very, very broad generalizations, but actually in detail, of course, some farmers are working extremely hard to to reduce the climate impacts of what they're producing. And so actually what I really want to see is is labelling of greenhouse gas emissions on all food packets. And then we could actually go in there and reward the, the, the great work that's already being done by many food producers. But also that would mean that food producers themselves would be a lot more aware of their climate impacts and would work on that side as well to reduce the climate impacts of what's being produced. Are all meats equivalently evil or are some worse than others? 
uh, in terms of climate impact, big difference between different types of meat. So if we look at something like beef and lamb, then they're, they're, they come from ruminants. They, they've got a particular type of stomach and about 5% of the calories eaten by a cow are burped out. Burped, very important, that not farted out as methane. And so that's a very potent greenhouse gas. And so they tend to be over 40 times the amount of climate impacts. So if you get 40 times as much uh, greenhouse gas emissions from eating a piece of beef, then the weight of that beef, it's relatively high compared to something like, say, chicken, which is closer to 10 times. So there's, there's about a factor of four difference between something like chicken and something like beef, how does, not more. How does dairy fit into the equation then? Because obviously you've got to keep a cow to have milk and, and therefore another staple of often many vegetarian diets is cheese, for example, which comes from milk. So how do the equations break down and shake down for the dairy industry? Yeah, so that, that's absolutely true. And in fact, if you, if you were to look at something like cheese, then it actually on average causes more greenhouse gas emissions than chicken. So if you were a meat eater who ate only chicken and you replaced all of that chicken with cheese, it would actually be on average worse for the climate. Hence you're saying that's why we need the labelling. Absolutely. And and it's just not so well known that there's these big differences. And it's simple to say, well, I'll, I'll just start eating lots of fruits and vegetables. But a lot of that stuff doesn't grow in this country. So when one factors in the carbon footprint of transport, how does that affect things? And would that be reflected in the label on the supermarket shelf? I would say that would be difficult, wouldn't it? Because how would the supermarket know that I'm going to drive to the supermarket to buy that apple or something and therefore add my carbon footprint to it? Or, or would we just have to live with the fact that extra carbon costs are, are, are necessary? There's lots of different ways of doing the climate labelling. For example, often people don't count the consumer, what the, you know, what we do as citizens within that, that number. So you might not necessarily have your car journey to the supermarket, but inside that label should definitely be all the transport that's happened to get that food to the supermarket. It very much depends on how that food has been transported. If the same piece of food were to come by ship versus by air, then flying it by air causes a hundred times more climate impact than, than than sending it by boat so as consumers we don't usually know when we go to the supermarket which things have come by air or by boat and so it's very difficult to know but if you have something that's come by air um, then it starts to get climate impacts comparable to those of some of the lower lower impact um, meats and animal products Sarah, thank you. We must leave it there. That's Sarah Bridal. Thanks for out the guests this week, of course. Kate Stewart, Shireen Kassam, Emma Garrett and Chris Davis. So has that convinced you to shift towards a more plant-dominated diet? Well, I'm going to give it a go and I would welcome any advice or recipes that a veggie virgin like me could easily embrace. Do send them in, chris at thenakedscientist.com. And finally, we've just got time for question of the week. And this week, Phil Sansom has really worked in his sweat in his efforts to answer listener Margaret. Why, why, why? I can work in the yard and be covered in sweat for hours and only stink a little, but reveal one sensitive personal thing to a group of friends and immediately stink to high heaven. I have a rubbish sense of smell and probably a bad sense of shame too. I've never noticed this. But Margaret has touched on some genuine science and I have two experts here to explain between them. Angela Ballard from the International Hyperhidrosis Society and University of Cambridge physiologist Christoph Schwening. Here's Angela first. The sweat your body produces when you're on stage, interviewing, or running late is indeed smellier than the sweat produced when you're working in your garden or exercising. 
your body has two different kinds of sweat glands. When you get hot exercising, the sweat you produce comes from eccrine sweat glands distributed all over your body. This type of sweat begins after a slight warm-up period and tends to be odorless because it's composed mostly of water. Whilst the liquid contains a natural antimicrobial, it provides the moisture that allows bacteria on your skin and in your clothes to grow, producing a little stink. The amount of stink will depend upon what bacteria are present and the sensitivity of your nose to those smells. But a word of warning, others may detect a stronger smell from you under those conditions because they are not adapted to your smell. Apocrine sweat glands, on the other hand, are found mostly in your underarm area, genital area, and on your feet. These glands produce a thick, viscous fluid that's full of proteins and lipids and respond immediately to stress. No warm-up period required. Now, fresh apocrine sweat doesn't actually smell that bad, but it is more oily than eccrine sweat, and critically, it wets regions that are rich in bacteria and odorants. And when you get embarrassed, the apocrine sweat wets these regions and all of a sudden the pong is released. And the bacteria that naturally live on the surface of your skin love to feed and grow where there's proteins and lipids. And when you have bacterial growth, you have odour. Your nose, like everyone else's, is sensitive to it because it gets to smell it, if you like, for the first time. But most people would struggle to detect a major stink under these circumstances. Now, it could be that your bacterial population is particularly pongy, or it could just be that your nose is more sensitive than most other people's. Thanks to Christoph and Angela for helping with that answer. Now, don't run away, because next week's question comes from listener Charlie. Humans have adrenaline for our fight or flight situation. Do bugs have this too? So can you give Charlie an answer? Email chris at thenakedscientists.com or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientists.com slash forum. And if you have a question of your own, send that in by email or there's a simple web form on our site, thenakedscientists.com slash question. And that's where we must leave it for this week. Thanks to Adam, who did the legwork and put the programme together. And do be sure to tune in at the same time next week when we'll be considering one of the facts of life that unfortunately blights existence for some women, damages the education of young girls in some countries and, many would argue, has attracted an unfair tax treatment on a health essential in some cases. We are talking about the menstrual cycle. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education and it's supported by Rolls-Royce. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.